Isaiah chapter 42, beginning in verse 18, and we'll read through 43, verse 21. Isaiah the prophet, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes to God's people, Hear, you deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness' sake to magnify his law and make glorious. But this is a people plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They have become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say restore. Who among you will give ear to this, will attend and listen for the time to come? Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord again, whom we have, against whom we have sinned, in whose ways they would not walk, in whose law they would not obey? So he poured on him the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around. But he did not understand. It burned him up, but, he, but did not take it to heart. But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes, and honored, I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you up. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Bring out the people who are blind, yet have ears, who are deaf, yet have, ear, yet have ears. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble, who among them can declare this and show us the former things. Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right and let them hear and say, it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me, I I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you. And you are my witnesses, declared the Lord, and I am God. Also, henceforth, I am He. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I send it to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives. Even the Chaldeans in the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. 
Certainly at some point in your life, you've experienced some numbness or insensitivity. Maybe it was physical numbness because you sat on the floor on your leg in an awkward way uh, and you stood up and it was difficult to walk and you couldn't quite feel your leg because it had fallen asleep. Or maybe you were injured and you lost feeling localized around the injury for a small amount of time. I think each of us can probably relate to this insensitivity or numbness in a physical sense. But maybe we can also relate to an emotional insensitivity or numbness. Sometimes this bears itself in our lives when we fail to take into consideration the difficulties of a friend. And then we make an insensitive joke that stirs up the hurt a little bit. Or sometimes we think, that would show some tough love to a coworker, but it lands us in the HR office and with an assignment for some sensitivity training. Physical, emotional numbness are very real things in the world we live in. But what about spiritual insensitivity? What about spiritual numbness? Have you considered that before? In this passage, God's people, Israel, who find themselves exiled in Babylon, have spiritual nerve damage. They've ignored God and His Word, and they've sinned against God. This has left them numb. It's left them desensitized. It's left them unfeeling towards God and His corrective discipline in their lives. If you're a parent or a child, you may have, and you all are, you all have been, or are currently. You may have experienced this. If you're a parent, maybe with your own children, as a child with your parents, you may, as a parent, have faithfully and biblically administered corrective discipline with your child, but less than a minute goes past. And your child is doing the exact same thing that they just were corrected for. This is the exact image of Israel in this passage. God faithfully sent his prophets. And you can read about that specifically even in this book from chapters 1 to 39 in Isaiah, where God sends the prophet Isaiah to correct. His people. God sends his prophets faithfully over and over and over again in their sin, calling Israel to forsake their idol worship, to forsake the worship of false gods. But Israel, in some periods, repents and turns back to God. But in many, many other instances, they grow calloused and numb and desensitized to this kind of calling. And so when we arrive here in these chapters that we're looking at, we remember that Israel has been carried off into exile in Babylon. This is a greater discipline. The simple calling back of the prophets now has, despite the calloused response of God's people, has now resulted in a form of exile. Seventy years of exile in Babylon for God's people, away from their homes, away from the place that God had given to them. But the good news of this passage as well, as we'll explore it together, is that the administration of corrective discipline by a loving parent, no matter how calloused the child is, does not end the parent-child relationship. It's not designed to bring it to an end. It's designed to, in fact, do the opposite. A parent who faithfully and biblically administers corrective discipline to their child strengthens their relationship. Forgiveness of sin comes to us only through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. For those who come to Christ by faith, they have forgiveness of sins. Their debt of sin is erased. 
We just sang it. It's thrown into sea without bottom or shore. It is removed from us as far as the east is from the west. For those who come to Christ by faith have their sin removed as far as the east is from the west. We know that in this life, our flesh is still corrupted by sin, and so we frequently still choose sin. We fall into patterns of sin, but God is on our side as a gracious and merciful Heavenly Father, and He is constantly seeking His children and bringing them into greater Christ-likeness. This is what we call sanctification, being made more like Christ, living more according to His Word. And the way that God does, in fact, accomplish this in us is through discipline, through corrective discipline. It is a father's duty to administer corrective discipline when a child disobeys. And since God is the perfect father, when we disregard him and his word, he administers corrective discipline in his life. Not because the discipline of God is required for us to have a relationship with God, but because it exists in order to strengthen our relationship with him, to make us more into the very thing that he longs for us and desires for us to be. And so when we experience the discipline of the Lord, when Israel experiences the discipline of the Lord here in Isaiah, God is not breaking relationship with them. He is revealing very clearly in these chapters and in the passage specifically today, that he intends to strengthen his relationship with his people. Our Heavenly Father disciplines us as his children to remind us that we are in fact his sons and daughters, that we belong to him, and to remind us of the purpose that he's given to us as his people. This is a long passage. There are many things contained here, but there are three things that I want to highlight for you this morning that will guide our time together. The first is simply, in this passage, the state of God's people. The secondly is reminders for God's people that he gives to them here in this passage. And then finally, the promised restoration for God's people. The state of God's people, the reminders for God's people, and promised restoration for God's people. First, the state of God's people. We have five senses, physical senses. And oftentimes throughout the Bible, the spiritual is applied or is these are used as a metaphor. These physical senses are used as a metaphor to help us better understand uh, the spiritual uh, that in which we are engaged. Psalm 34.8, for example, these are two examples. There are many, many, many. Psalm 34.8 tells us, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Tasting, seeing. Physical senses applied to a spiritual reality. The goodness of God. Jesus uses these sorts of metaphors in Matthew 13.16. Again, one example of many in in the Gospels. Jesus tells his disciples that they perceived spiritual things by saying, But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Jesus wasn't talking about blessedness because they could open up their eyes and see physical realities or hear the things going on around them. He was talking specifically about spiritual realities. Blessed are your eyes, because the disciples perceived things spiritually that those around them, when Jesus spoke, did not perceive. This passage begins by addressing the deaf and the blind, but not in a physical sense again, in a spiritual sense. I have to make one note here before we move on, and this is a bit of an aside, but it's an important one to make. A couple of weeks ago, when we were at the beginning of Isaiah 42, we met the servant of the Lord. Uh, Important to note that the servant of the Lord in that passage is referring specifically to and is a prophecy of Jesus Christ who would come into the world 700 years after the events that are taking place in these chapters. In verse 19 of our passage this morning, in chapter 42 that is, God refers to his servant. 
But there's a break here in between those two ideas. So we should not apply this instance of the word servant to Jesus like we did in Isaiah 42, 1-9. Instead, we need to go back to chapter 41, verse 8, where God refers to Israel as his servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. So God is now moving back to, as he's addressing his people, he is referring to them as Israel, as his servant. This is a break, a different idea and section from what we saw in 42, 1 through 9. That bears saying, because I don't, what we can't do is mix these two things up. The context helps us understand, but because we've taken such a large portion of text this morning, I want to be sure that when we start seeing the word servant again, that our minds go to the proper place. So God addresses his servant, Israel, or his messenger, secondly, in verse 19. He addresses this one, and he says, it is blind and it is deaf. The point here that God is highlighting for his people is a spiritual numbness or insensitivity. He's calling them to see and to hear. And in verse 20, he calls out this contrast, again, between the physical and the spiritual. He sees, the servant of the Lord, Israel, sees many things, but he does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. This is the contrast. They see many things, they don't observe. They hear with their ears open, but they do not hear. Now, we didn't actually unpack the first 39 chapters in Isaiah. But when we read this, we need to, in our mind's eye, um, consider a chapter earlier that we have not actually looked at, and that's Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, back at the beginning of Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet sees the Lord and he's in his throne room. He has a vision and he goes into the Lord's throne room in this vision. And uh, he observes the holiness of God and it is, in fact, devastating for Isaiah. It's an an incredible scene and if you go back and read Isaiah 6, you'll see that. But towards the end of that interaction, God on his throne asks the question, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And this became a popular verse uh, a while back where uh, Isaiah responds positively. He says, here I am, send me. Uh, An important response. To hear the word of the Lord and to respond positively is in fact a credit to Isaiah. He saw the Lord, saw that he was holy, and to oppose him would, in fact, be problematic. But, after Isaiah says, here I am, send me, God gives him a message that he wants him to deliver. And uh, this is found in Isaiah 6, 9 through 10. God tells Isaiah to tell the people of Israel Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Now this seems a little confusing to us. Why would God instruct Isaiah to give this bleak message to his people? Why would he do that? We like the first eight verses. This, when we get here, it kind of gets a little bit, it becomes a bit of a downer. But this passage, Isaiah 6, 9 through 10, is actually quoted in the New Testament five or maybe even six times. Many times this is applied in the New Testament. So why? As we look at those first 39 chapters in Isaiah, we find that the generation that Isaiah is sent to has in fact given themselves to idol worship. They have been worshiping false gods. And they've been doing it for a long time. A long, long time. And God tells Isaiah that Isaiah's preaching will serve to continue 
to desensitize Israel to their sin. They will continue in their spiritual numbness. It reveals the state of God's people in those 39 chapters. This communicates very specific and important truth to us about who God is and who we are. The reality of this is that when the message of God's word comes to us, either we grow calloused against it or we grow in our sensitivity towards it. Indifference to God's word shows a calloused heart towards God's word. But when God's word is proclaimed, we never remain neutral. Either God moves us towards sensitivity towards spiritual things, or our hearts grow calloused to them. This is an important truth for us to recognize and realize. In Isaiah 42, God is showing that He has been sending His prophets, and they've been proclaiming His Word, God's Word, to the people of Israel for a very long time. But these generations upon generations have grown numb and desensitized to the proclamation of God's Word. This has led to God's corrective discipline in the form of exile to Babylon. But note here that even the state of spiritual numbness that has plagued God's people for generations, even in the midst of it, God still intends to and will and is accomplishing His purposes. Look at verse 22. Am I on the right page? No, 21. The Lord was pleased for His righteousness' sake to magnify His law and make it glorious. What does that mean? It means that God's word will prove true in every instance. Regardless of the situation or circumstance surrounding God's people, God's word will prove true in every instance. God intends to make this point fully known. The point that he will magnify his law and make it glorious. That he will take his word and prove it to be true. For his righteousness sake. When God's people are sensitive to His Word and live according to it, God's Word is proved true. And when God's people grow numb to His Word and are corrected to return to live according to it, God's Word proves to be true. These are the two options, he's saying. Two options. You grow calloused towards it when it's proclaimed to you, or you grow sensitive to it as it's proclaimed to you. So God's people here, in, uh, the, the Israelites, they're numb. They're desensitized to his word. It tells us even here that at the end of chapter 42, in verse 25, that fire doesn't even affect them. They're being burned up, but they're so insensitive. They're so numb that this doesn't even get to them. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. God brings Babylon to carry Israel away into exile. Babylon represents the heat of God's anger. Israel is burned up, but Israel does not take it to heart. Now, the one note here on the word anger. So he poured out on him the heat of his anger. What we can't do when we see that word is overlay our own understanding of anger onto what God's anger is. Our anger oftentimes comes on strong and quickly, and sometimes it's not controllable. That's how we think about anger, is in our own sense. But that's not what God's anger is described here. God's anger described here is action taken against his people because of their sin, And it's designed to show just how numb they are to what he has told them. So numb that even when the fire comes and it burns them, they don't feel it. God stands up in his might and his power 
and his people stare blankly at him, unaffected by who he is, unaffected as they're carried off out of their homeland. This is sort of the bad news portion of this section of text. But the psalmist reminds us in Psalm 30, verse 5, For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. And that's exactly what we see in the next section here, beginning in chapter 43. And this is our second point this morning, reminders for God's people. God disciplines his people, but where the sting of discipline seems to not land because of spiritual numbness, God begins to gently remind his people of what he is to them. We see this listed throughout this section. We see truth like he is their creator. He is the one who made them, yes, but he's also the one who has called them as a people. He made them into a people. He is their protector. He is their savior. He loves them. He delights in them. He is their redeemer. He is their father. And the list continues. You could probably pull out several other things from these verses. And what this amounts to is miraculous reminders of who God is. Because based on what we read in Verse 18 through the end of chapter 42, be like, what? Just get rid of these people. But God isn't going to do that at all. In fact, he, he goes way above and over the top in his mercy. He reminds his people. He doesn't dial up the discipline to 11 if it's at 10. He doesn't say, well, you didn't feel that. You'll feel this. Instead, what he does is he patiently reminds them of who he is and what he is to them. These are miraculous reminders because they don't make sense. They don't, it doesn't, this course of action can't can't actually fully make sense to us as people. Spiritual numbness and insensitivity cannot prevent God from restoring his people. And we're reminded that none of this is what we deserve. We're reminded that everything that comes after that chapter 43 heading in our Bibles is not something that we deserve. This is why God, you, you can't look at verses 18 through 25 and 42 and think, they were doing a pretty good job. And so God was like, hey, yeah, here, here's some mercy for you. In fact, it's the exact opposite. They were doing incredibly poorly. They were ignoring God, killing his prophets, despising his word, living in all sorts of sin, worshiping other gods, inviting them in, doing everything that they could to oppose him. And so we're reminded that in this text that everything that comes after that chapter 43 heading is something that we don't deserve. We don't deserve a protector and a savior, someone who loves us, someone who delights in us, someone who redeems us. We're reminded that none of this is what we deserve. Instead, we're reminded that we're precious in God's eyes despite all of that, that he loves us. You're not precious in God's eyes. God doesn't love you because you overcame this spiritual insensitivity. You're not precious in God's eyes because you shook off your spiritual numbness. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, we're told that salvation comes from God, who is rich in mercy, and it comes to us because of the great love with which he loved us. Again, he didn't love us because we were doing a good job or we were really great or that we were enough or because we were lovely. In fact, that passage tells us that we were dead in our sin. Like Israel in this passage, blind, deaf, insensitive, numb, even to the point that we would be declared dead. 
But God saves us. He makes us alive again by grace, a gift from him because he loved us. And Ephesians 2.8 says, this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. And so with this in mind, when we get to chapter 43, we must not be tempted or make the mistake of thinking that Israel's exile, the corrective discipline that God takes, the action that God takes against Israel, was the thing that shook God's people back to reality. Know that they were, in fact, disciplined, but it is not the discipline that shakes them back to reality. And if you don't hear anything else this morning, hear what I'm about to say, because this is at the heart of what's happening in chapter 43. We must not make the the mistake of thinking that Israel's exile in Isaiah was the thing that shook God's people back to reality. Being, Being carried off into exile in Babylon did not accomplish that. What cured God's people of their spiritual numbness was his great love for his people shown in the revelation of himself to them. What cures us of spiritual numbness is nothing other than the love of God for us. The question then becomes, how does God reveal himself to us, thereby showing his great love for us? How does God reveal himself to us? Because that's what he's doing in chapter 43. He's saying, this is your state. You're numb, you're deaf. Everything that I've sent to you, you've rejected, and, and so I've administered corrective discipline, but this is what's true about you. I love you. I've called you. I've created you. I've redeemed you. I'm your savior. I'm your protector. I'm your friend. This is our relationship, God says. I love you. I delight in you. God is revealing himself to them. But even this is only a shadow of the revelation that God will present of himself to his people. Because the way that God fully and finally reveals himself to us, showing his great love for us, is in Jesus Christ and him crucified. The full reminder of all that God says about who he is for his people is found in Jesus. Jesus brings God's sons and daughters from afar and from the ends of the earth. Look at verse 6 in chapter 43. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Jesus Christ became, because of him, we receive our adoption papers. The Apostle Paul picks this up in Galatians chapter, Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer slaves, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And the sons and the daughters we are called by his name, created for his glory, verse 7 and 43. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, who I formed and made. He has made us into a people. Not just rogue individuals running around, but to, into his church. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so if you find yourself spiritually numb, The answer is to go to the cross of Christ, to see God who reveals himself to you fully and finally in the person of Jesus. With the great benefit of doing that together as we approach the Lord's table in a few moments. In Jesus, God is more to us than we could possibly fathom. In Christ, God is 
more to us than we could possibly fathom. All of the things that he says in this passage and more. And it is important for us to know who we are according to God. But it is also, and even more important, for us to know that we belong to him. That brings us to our final point this morning. Very briefly, the promised restoration for God's people. The promised restoration for God's people. This section of text concludes with God talking about the future restoration of Israel. That God will bring Israel back to Jerusalem. And he's actually going to do that in 70 years from the time that they were captured by Babylon. And God tells his people that just like he delivered Israel from Egypt through the waters of the Red Sea, that he will bring them out of Babylon. Look at verses 16 and 17. This is an allusion to uh, the Exodus. Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters. This is the Red Sea. Who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. When the Israelites passed through the Red Sea, then the Red Sea came crashing down on Pharaoh and on his army, chariots, horses. They can't get up. They were swallowed up by the water. God's saying, I'm going to do that again. I'm going to bring you out of this exile. But God isn't saying, telling them to simply recall what he had done in the past. He's going to initiate a new exodus. He doesn't say, your hope here isn't just in what I've done. It's what I'm telling you that I will do. What I will bring about in among you. Trust God for future restoration. Look at verses 18 and 19. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. God is going to bring about their deliverance in an unlikely way. He's going to bring them out of the wilderness like he did. He says that in verse 20, he's going to use wild beasts that will honor him. This is an allusion to the rulers and authorities of people groups that are not Israel. Specifically in this case, when he gets his name, I think in the next chapter, and uh, is Cyrus, the great of Persia. God will use even a, a, a pagan king to bring his people, an unlikely source, a river in the desert, a cup of cool water for his people in order that they would be restored. And again, God has promised restoration for us. Brothers and sisters, we do not have a faith that is looking backwards continually. It is good for us to remember what God has done for us in our lives, what he's done for us throughout history. But the orientation of our faith is future. We look ahead to what God has promised. God will, in fact, bring us to full restoration in him. When Christ returns, the new heavens and the new earth will be established. And we will be raised to live perfect peace with our God. We don't only look back to what God has done, but fully trust him that he intends to right all wrongs. And that he intends to bring us to full restoration in him. That leads us. To a conclusion this morning, three things that I want you to note that we're going to turn our attention to the Lord's table. I have to emphasize this based on the point that just came up in the text at the end of at the end of the text that we read together, the middle of chapter 43. That this restoration that God talks about for his people is in fact for his people. It is in fact for His people. His people are those who come to Christ by faith. If you're not part of God's people this morning, it is because you have not come to Christ by faith. And for those who have not come to Christ by faith, they are in fact enemies of God, not his friends. There are many cultural things that are suggested in our world 
that would be a place where we might be tempted to trust. Things that we might be tempted to trust in, in order to be secure for our future. Maybe you're here this morning, and you think because you grew up with Christian parents, or because your grandmother took you to church once in a while, or because you were confirmed, or because you were baptized, or because you prayed a prayer one time in a youth group, or you think because of these things, or something similar to this, you think you're a Christian. But if you're trusting in anything, any action that you've taken as an individual, anything that you've taken, any action as an individual, any reputation that you've cultivated in the community, anything that you have done in your own strength, in your own power, I can most assuredly tell you that you are not, in fact, a Christian. If you're trusting in some action you took in the past, some status you hold, some good thing you've done, if you're trusting in anything outside of Christ to secure your eternity, you will, in fact, spend eternity in hell. So the call for you this morning is to come to Christ. God works miraculously in the hearts of those who are numb and calloused and even dead to make them alive and to waken their spiritual sensitivities. Friend, if that's you this morning and you're trusting in something other than the person of Christ, come to Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Believe not just that he exists, but that he came into the world and he died for the forgiveness of sins. That he was raised for your justification. Believe that his sinless life was fully pleasing to God and that God's people will in fact be your people and that the hope in life and in death that you desperately need is in him and him alone. So come to Christ this morning. The eternal restoration that is promised here will be yours if you simply come to Christ. Because those who come to Christ belong to God. If you're not sure what that means, please find me afterwards and let's talk. The restoration that's spoken of in this passage is for God's people. Second, concluding point, a question for you. Have you grown calloused or numb to God's word? Friends, this is a real danger for us. And these people who had grown calloused and numb to God's word were in fact God's people. This is in fact a possibility for you. It is a possibility that you might come to congregational worship here in this setting regularly and you might leave embittered with a critical spirit towards those others here. If that's the case for you, you've grown spiritually numb. Or if you decide that this space is something that isn't terribly important and negotiated away quickly with other activities, it might be an indicator that you're spiritually numb. If you see the Bible sitting on your coffee table on a Tuesday and think, should I pick that up and read? But you push that down inside of you and justify the inactivity by saying you have a lot of things to do and you're very busy, it might be an indicator that you're spiritually numb. If you've had a challenging day at work and you think it's because God is punishing you and God is in fact not merciful but is chastising you in an angry and bittered way, that might be an indicator that you are spiritually numb. Spiritual numbness comes when the word of God is devalued in our lives. And this is the serpent's strategy in the garden before sin even entered the world. His conversation with Eve, the serpent led with, did God actually say? A devaluing of what God actually said. A devaluing of God's word. And the focus was immediately shifted from a good and generous God who had given Adam and Eve the entire garden and all good gifts To a numbness to God's goodness. 
Maybe he is withholding from me what is truly good. Satan's strategy, devalue God's word and shift the focus off God's true character. The Israelites did the same thing. God surely can't be all that he says he is for us. Sacrificing and worshiping these, sacrificing to and worshiping these other gods will be a bit of an insurance policy for us. But God was saying to them, clearly, I am all you need. God was all they needed. They needed nothing more. Our spiritual blindness and deafness threatens to perpetuate itself. And friends, again, what is the solution to this numbness? What's the solution to a heart that's grown calloused and insensitive to the things of God? What cures us of spiritual numbness is God's great love for his people, shown in the revelation of himself to them. To be shown our irreversible spiritual numbness and have it reversed by a miraculous outpouring of grace from a God who loves us. It is Jesus who unplugs deaf ears and opens blind eyes and restores spiritual sensitivity to his people. Finally this morning, in Christ you are created for God's glory. In Christ you are created for God's glory. This is God's purpose for you. Each of us has the purpose of magnifying Christ, glorifying God. Sometimes, oftentimes, Christians get bogged down in determining their purpose. What is my purpose in this life? But the Bible is clear, whatever you do, do it for God's glory. Not for the approval of men, not for personal gain or for glory. Eat and work and drive and play and sing and walk and talk and love all for God's glory. Do it to show Him to the world as the all-satisfying, generous, good and gracious God that He is, that He reveals Himself to be in this passage. When God graciously restores our spiritual sensitivities, one of the primary fruits is that our motivations are recalibrated. We go from self-focused to God-focused, from entitled to grateful, from prideful to humble. In Christ, you are created for God's glory. God says to his people, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, I formed and I made. God gives us a practical reminder of this every time we come to the Lord's table. He gives us the practical reminder that Jesus Christ was the full and final revelation of God's love for us. That we need not look anywhere but to Christ for the, every, all, everything that we need. To be all satisfying for us. To wash everything that hinders us away from us, hinders us from coming to God. So as we approach the Lord's table this morning, the invitation is to come, to see the broken body and the shed blood that were given for you. To see that those elements, those realities, the very things that they represent, broken body for your justification, Shed blood for the forgiveness of your sins is, in fact, all that you need. There's nothing that you can add. God's love shown to us clearly in the person of Jesus Christ, represented by the elements that we will participate in together. This is not a saving ordinance. You're not saved by coming up and grabbing some bread and drinking some juice. That would be trusting in something other than the person of Jesus. But this is a practical reminder for us that God has, in fact, made a way. There's only one way, and it's Jesus. Paul, in 1 Corinthians, writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The reality of what we're about to do is that we are remembering God and the sacrifice that he sent in the person of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, if you are in Christ, if you've trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of sin, you're welcome to come and participate. If one of those things that I mentioned earlier about trusting in something other than Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins or for your eternal security, if that's true of you, uh, this meal is not for you. This is for God's people who are promised restoration in him. And so if, if you're wondering, where do I stand with God and how do I, what does this all mean and what does this look like? If you're unsure or uncertain or even unconvinced, just this is a time for those who have trusted Jesus. For the rest of you, come, eat, rejoice. The restoration of God that he has promised to you in the person of Jesus belongs to you. So come, take the elements, enjoy, and remember all that God has done for you and look forward to all that he will do. We say this each time we come to the Lord's table. Parents, if your children have yet to make a profession of faith, uh, use this as an opportunity to share the gospel with them, but do not invite them to participate with you. Again, this is for believers in Jesus Christ. We thank you. This is a, a great honor for us as people. I mean, it is so a great privilege and gratitude that we show to one another in unity as we approach the table. I'm going to pray. The worship team is going to come up, and then we will, in fact, uh, we will, in fact, come to the table when you're prepared, and eat the take the elements, eat and drink when you are ready. God, this morning we praise you as your people. God, we recognize the inability that we have in and of ourselves to make a way. God, we recognize that Jesus Christ is, in fact, the way. That there is no way to come to the Father except through him. And so this morning as we approach the table, would we rejoice in the reality that you have sent Jesus as a revelation of yourself to us. The great love for which you had for us can be seen clearly in the things, the elements that stand before us. God, would we trust in Christ and him alone? God, would you in our hearts today cause us to believe what is true? What you have said to us about who we are, but also, and even more importantly, that we belong to you. God, we thank you for the infinite well of mercy that's poured out upon us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray this morning. Amen.